We've been in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. Um, we had finished up a series teaching the Apostles' Creed, the, the 12 statements that are considered to be fundamental to the Christian faith, that is, God the Father's existence as the Creator, Jesus, His Son, what He did on the earth, what He's doing now in heaven, and then the Holy Spirit, and the things that the Holy Spirit does in the world that is uh, establishes a people of God called the church. Now, when we talk about the church, of course, we don't mean this church alone. We mean the church worldwide, uh, which is why the, the creed has the phrase, the, the holy universal church. That is, the one people of God that he has called together to himself, through which he uh, continues to transform the earth. And so, after the Apostles' Creed, we went into uh, the, day, the day of ascension and ascension tide, that, that is the, the time of remembering when Christ had ascended to the Father, thus demonstrating that God the Father had both vindicated Christ through the resurrection of the, uh, after the cross, and, as well as demonstrated Jesus to be the Lord, not just the Messiah. That is, by Christ's ascension, God has demonstrated to the world that Jesus really is the Son of God and that his agents, the church, uh, being acted in and through with the Holy Spirit, uh, they are the chosen means by which God will, will change the world. And so Jesus, through his ascension, rules and reigns through the church. After the ascension comes the outpouring of Pentecost, and then that happened to coincide well with the book of Acts chapters 1 and 2, and now we've uh, made it all the way to Acts 15. We skipped a few chapters uh, for for a number of reasons, but by and large, we're, we're going through this series on the book of Acts to do one specific thing. Paul says that the five uh, gifts of ministry or the five offices in the church, pastor, evangelist, shepherd, uh, teacher, prophet, um, those offices are given for one thing, for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And so, my goal here is not to convince you that Acts is a good book. It's to have you understand what the book of Acts tells us about missionary activities and the way churches are founded and established. And through you seeing the, the beauties of God's faithfulness to his people through the, book, the stories in the book of Acts, that that would transform the way that you decide to live your life, spend your time, and, and give and serve. And so that's what we've been doing this uh, series for. Uh, today we've come to a subject that might not seem to be applicable to uh, the Vacation Bible School and, and Rock Campus Fellowship and all of the things that we're doing as a church, and it might even not seem applicable to you yourselves. You're, you're not Judaizers who are arguing for circumcision, but I but I beg you to give me the benefit of 30 minutes to make a case that we are susceptible to the same influences that took place in this chapter. So uh, with that said, we're going to look at a few things. First, the, the Judaizing influence that comes against the apostles. We're going to look at how Paul and Barnabas had their apostolic authority affirmed. The alliteration of that phrase is um, ultimately amazing. And... Uh, we're going to look at Peter's testimony. I, I often get uh, pastor's jokes are that they can alliterate anything, and so whenever I get a chance, I try. Peter's testimony and James's testimony, we're going to look at how those are, are the, the apostolic testimony against the Judaism 
that was, or the Judaizing effect that was uh, attempting to come. We're going to look at what is the first epistle that the apostles sent, um, and then we're going to look at how when these these other Christians received this epistle, they rejoiced, and then finally how we are to remain in freedom, being subject to Christ alone, no other uh, law or or religious influence. So um, we've been in this series, in the book of Acts, we've been looking at, at a, a core tenant, that is, the book of Acts is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy and command in Acts 1.8. Jesus, as the greatest prophet, declares to his apostles before he ascends to the heaven, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So there's going to be an effect of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You will, you will receive power, and then you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. And so we've seen how the book of Acts is actually structured around the progressive fulfillment of that prophecy. It starts in Jerusalem, Stephen is killed in Acts 7, they flee to Judea and Samaria, and then from there, uh, persecution follows them. So not only, uh, the, the other major theme that I'd like to also emphasize is not only is the book of Acts the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1.8, it is also that there is a progressive hardening of the Jews against the gospel and that their persecution and, and Judaizing effect serves as a catalyst to enhance and, and enliven the spreading of the gospel. That was a, a core element of, of Acts chapter 8. It, it starts off with that a persecution arose because Stephen was killed, and the floodgates of violence are opened up against the church, and the martyrdom begins to, uh, you know, kind of rise on the scene. And so from there, uh, there on, we've seen James has been, had, had been killed. Uh, that's not the James that we're going to talk about today. James was killed, and then they they begin to persecute them, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria, and it gets worse and worse. So, uh, also, two weeks ago, we had looked at, after Peter had gone both to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles, there arose up some people, the party of the circumcision, who said that it was necessary uh, that Peter should have withheld the gospel from the Gentiles. Uh, he, he, he encounters people who accuse him, saying, you went among the uncircumcised, and you went and fellowshiped among them. And, and Peter then demonstrates how it wasn't his doing, but God's. And so this is happening over and over again. At, at first, in, in Acts 2, the apostles are merely ridiculed with uh, their, their slandered, if you will, saying that they're drunk and then Acts 3, 4, Peter and John are arrested. Eventually, James is killed. They're uh, spoken against by the, the Pharisaic party. And over and over again, this is, uh, this is a building of violence and opposition. And then last week, we had seen how the commission of Paul and Barnabas, they had been sent from Antioch to go to the Gentiles. And when they had arrived at the other city that's called Antioch, uh, the Jews rose up and, and created a strife in the city, and the Jews had uh, convinced the leading members of that city that the gospel was false. And so Paul and Barnabas say it was necessary that the gospel be first pro proclaimed to the Jews, but now we turn to the Gentiles, for God had said to Paul, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And effectively, 
the focus of the entire book now is changing from the Jews to the Gentiles. The gospel is going to the world around Israel. And so that's, that's the context for today. So, so after Paul and Barnabas have um, left Antioch, this is what, if you've ever seen in your map, uh, in, the, in the back of your Bible, there's a map that says Paul's first missionary journey. That's Acts 13 through 15. That's, that's exactly what takes place. Um, so Paul and Barnabas had gone out and the, the word of the Lord had spread rapidly and they've gone through Sidia and Pamphylia and all these uh, wonderful places in, in, in Asia Minor or Turkey. And now they've returned and so they, they left Antioch, being sent by the Holy Spirit. They've went on a missionary journey, and they've come back to Antioch. And from uh, Judea, these people show up. Now, um, in Acts 15, we, we, we already read, but just to remind us, but some men came down from Judea, and then it says in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. Now, uh, these people who come down are referred to as men. They're not referred to as teachers, scribes, elders, apostles, missionaries, evangelists. They're not given any sort of credentials. And worse than that, they're also anonymous people. They're just people from Judea. They were a spiritual influence other than uh, the church. That is, the apostles in Jerusalem had not sent these people up to Antioch. Antioch is, is a little north of Ju- uh, Jerusalem. And so these people show up, and they're just these guys. And so, in contrast, in verse uh, 1, it says, these men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers. Now, in Antioch, there were mostly Gentile converts to the faith. There were, there were Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers in the city of Antioch, Antioch, but it doesn't say, the book of Acts doesn't call them Gentiles and Jewish believers. It calls them brothers because the cultural identity of these people who have received the gospel has changed. And unlike men, just these random men, they're brothers. They're people who are in relationship with the church. And so the the dividing wall that Paul later explains that was taken down through Christ's work on the cross is now being worked out in a cultural setting. These are no longer Gentiles. They're no longer Jews. They're brothers. And so uh, what takes place here in Acts 13, later when Paul makes the full circuit, we know that these people are are Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. And so the the gospel had gone out from Jerusalem, and and then it had also gone out from Judea and Samaria. And if you remember right, the the persecution that comes when Stephen is killed leaves Jerusalem, and it goes to Judea and Samaria. And so these these Jewish people who are persecuting the church and opposing the gospel are attempting to kind of follow up and catch up to the church. If you, you can think about it kind of like uh, ripples in a, in a pool. There's like a raindrop of Acts 2 in the Holy Spirit, and it, it, it ripples throughout this pool of land, if you will. And then another raindrop comes from another source, and they're trying to catch up with that previous wave of the gospel going out. And so Paul and Barnabas immediately confront them and and take exception with their teaching. And um, what takes place from the the city of Antioch, Antioch had already sent Paul and Barnabas, that is the the authority of the brothers, the church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit spoke through them and said, set apart for me Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And now these very ones who had spread the gospel are now commissioned to go to Jerusalem to defend the gospel. 
And so, this apostolic authority that Paul and Barnabas have is identified, it's strengthened through the communication and fellowship that they receive when Paul and Barnabas arrive at Jerusalem, but it's also vindicated and, and validated in, in a way. Uh, to be clear, Paul and Barnabas do not go to Jerusalem. Many people, when they hear about the Jerusalem Council and that there was this debate, if you will, about the issue of whether the believers needed to obey the law and be circumcised, or if they did not need to obey the law and did not need to be circumcised, some people think that there was an actual debate among the apostles. It is the case that Paul and Barnabas had no reason that uh, in their minds that they needed the apostles uh, in Jerusalem to validate their opinion that the gospel was for the Gentiles and that the Gentiles did not need to submit to the law. And that's proved because of the words that are used in Galatians 1 and 2. It, it literally talks about this exact account happening. In fact, it even uses the same types of phrases like the people who are troubling you and the people who are unsettling you. Um, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they go to defend the gospel, the true Orthodox faith, they don't go to have their opinions settled by the apostles in Jerusalem. They're not going to oppose the apostles in Jerusalem, but rather make a clear uh, demonstration and defense for the truth of the gospel. So when they came to Jerusalem, the Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Again, this is contrasting these anonymous men. Now, these anonymous men are then un unveiled in verse 5 to be belong to the party of the Pharisees. And so these people stand up and say, it's necessary. Christ is not enough for them to be saved. It is necessary for them to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Now, what this is doing, Paul makes plain in the whole book of Galatians, is it's setting aside the sacrifice that Jesus had made on the cross. And it's substituting... Uh, their own religious laws uh, for the, the mission of God. So the apostolic authority of Paul and Barnabas is it's identified and, and uh, testified by two or three witnesses. Um, it's a pattern in, in God's ways that every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. This takes place because they're identified by the church and the apostles and the elders uh, versus these Pharisees who just speak on their own. And so, Paul and Barnabas are demonstrated to be in fellowship with the rest of the brothers, and now we begin to see the origin of this strange teaching. It's not just anonymous men. They're identified as the Pharisees. Remember when Jesus had said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. This was after he had just fed the multitude, and uh, they had the apostles had collected the baskets of food, of, of the bread and the fish. And the apostles think that Jesus is speaking about physical bread that the Pharisees sell. He, what Jesus was saying is, beware of the leaven, that is the, the influence of religious men who do not serve God, but rather serve themselves. And in fact, Paul makes it even more clear in the book of Galatians. In, in uh, chapter 5, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He is connecting the idea of Galatians 5 to the to the religious influence of, of this Judaizing, you need to take on circumcision, you need to follow the law of Moses. And so, Peter, in the midst of this, you know, they, they go down to, to Jerusalem, and they're immediately glor uh, 
they're immediately received by the church, and Paul and Barnabas start to tell stories of God's wonderful actions throughout those cities and the number of years they had spent in Asia Minor. And then immediately, Peter begins to provide a defense for the gospel going to the to the Gentiles. He says, uh, this is what happened when I went to Cornelius' house in Acts 10. Um, Acts 15, 7 through 9, Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. Now, the reason it says early days is because while the book of Acts looks like it's, ha- you know, everything's happening in uh, day after day, it, there was a massive amount of time that uh, had taken place in the, the first missionary journey. Uh, if you if you read Gen- uh, Galatians 1 the way I do, I think, it, you know, their first missionary dur- journey, it took them about 14 years. And so, Paul, you know, had, had gone and, and been an apostle for years, and he was sure of the grace of God, the signs and wonders confirming the word that Paul had spoken. And so, you know, Peter says, in reference to what happened in Acts 10, he calls them the early days, which means it had to be the case that there were a number of years that have spanned. And so, he says, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. By, and then in, in verse 8, the second half, uh, well, God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So, Paul says that uh, basically he's recapitulating the defense that he had given in Acts 11. When these when these Pharisees come to Peter and said, you went among the Gentiles and, you know, you shouldn't have, that was a sin, uh, Peter then says, it actually wasn't my command, God sent me there, and this is the exact same defense that he uses. He explains that the significance of what happened when the Holy Spirit fell on those new believers. He says that it was an identification of the fulfillment of the new new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, uh, as well as in the book of Jeremiah, God God says, I will, in those days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And he, he goes on to talk about how the law will not be external, but it'll be written on their hearts, and they won't have a heart of stone, but rather a heart of flesh. And then the, the capstone of the gospel is this, that I will put a new spirit within you. This isn't going to be your own life any longer. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And so Peter is saying that the new covenant has come, and it has been identified with the capstone of the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. And then he says that God bore witness to those new believers that they themselves were justified in that moment. So, uh, this, this connecting phrase is extremely important. Peter says that the, the, the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles just as. That phrase, just as, means in the same manner, in the same respect, with the same conditions, the Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles just as he did to us. And Paul makes this point uh, clear in Galatians 3. He who supplies the, the, the Spirit among you and does miracles, does he do it by the doing of the works of the law, or does he do it by hearing and with faith? That is, God supplies the Holy Spirit to, to his children because they hear the gospel and respond in faith. It's not by the doing of the works of the law. And so, they hadn't received it by doing the works of the law. And if those new believers were demonstrated to be righteous before God, why are we attempting to add on to what God's doing? Acts 15, 10, 11, uh, Peter, after providing his 
testimony, he then says, uh, practically, what's going on here? What's up? This is whack, if you will. In Acts 15, he says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Remember when Jesus was uh, being tempted by Satan in, in the wilderness, at one point they, they kind of leave the wilderness and Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And he, he says to Jesus, uh, cast yourself off for you know that the Lord won't, that God won't let you, you know, dash your foot against a stone. And what does Jesus respond with? He responds with this, in the, in the word of the Lord, the Lord has said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what is Peter saying when he's using this phrase? You're, you're putting the Lord to the test. He's saying that you're breaking the law. You're, you're, you're actually in evil right now when you're saying that they need to follow the law of Moses and to be circumcised in order to be saved. He's saying that, that their religious zealousy uh, for keeping the law by, by attempting to maintain it when God had clearly demonstrated that uh, in some way it, it had not been totally set aside, but it has in some way been modified— he says that by attempting to keep it in, in force, you are actually breaking it because God is being put to the test by you. And so he demonstrates that these Pharisees are not lovers of God, but rather are sinners. James continues uh, to speak uh, uh, or continues to affirm what uh, Peter had spoken. Now, um, for those who were keeping score, James had already been killed by uh, Herod. This isn't the same James. He didn't come back to life. Although that could have been possible. Uh, many people consider this to be James, the, the brother of Jesus, uh, or James the just. So this uh, little, you know, just to keep your history correct. So he summarizes what Peter had done, and he re reiterates that the Gentiles were demonstrated as being integrated into the new covenant by his use of the phrase, a people for his name. That, that was biblical language to describe the people of Israel. And he says that James... James, the brother of Jesus, says that God has demonstrated the gospel has gone forth to the Gentiles by using this phrase, a people for my name. In fact, he then goes on and says, after this, I will return, that is, this is the prophet Amos, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are what? Called by my name. He used that phrase twice to be extremely clear. Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Now, Amos was already old, and, and Amos is using the phrase from of old. He's talking about this idea of the eternal covenant, the plan that had already existed in the heart of God to demonstrate his goodness through the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the proclamation of the gospel to all people throughout all land. So, he declares that Amos 9 has been fulfilled and that the Gentiles are now the people who are called by his name, a term exclusively used in the scripture to describe the people of God. So he then goes on to recommend an end to the council, Acts 15, 19 through 21. He says, uh, 19, my judgment is we should not trouble those who are of the Gentiles, uh, who turn to God, not, not the Gentiles who are just out there, but the ones who turn to God, that is those who hear the gospel, we're going to write them a letter and here's the reason why in verse 21. 
Now, he says that telling the Gentiles, in effect, uh, would be troubling to them. Why would it be troubling? I, I think it's extremely clear. He, he says, we haven't been able to keep the law, and our fathers have not been able to keep the law. And so it would be placing a burden on these Gentile believers that was not from the Lord. Now, verse 21 is, is kind of confusing if you don't um, think it through a little bit. He says, we're going to write them a letter and we're going to send it to them for this reason. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The reason why the apostles think it's necessary to write a letter and send it everywhere is they feel so strongly that this Judaizing influence, this this influence that says Christ is not enough, you must be circumcised to be saved, they're so concerned that that influence is going to spread everywhere because the party of the circumcision and the Pharisees would send men to every city and they'd be teaching this in all the synagogues. And, and you know, if, you're, if you're a student of, of church history in the first two centuries, it is the case that almost in every city where the gospel had, had seen much success, the synagogues literally became churches. They, they kept the same art. They kept some of the similar cultural effects. But he was concerned that the apostles were concerned that this movement that had reached Antioch would try to go other places. And indeed it, it had, uh, which is why Paul writes the book of, of Galatians. The synagogues are absolutely everywhere. It's the case that if Jews live in a city and they have more than 10 Jewish uh, people there, they uh, are commanded to establish a synagogue. Uh, it can be small, but it, they need one. And so because these synagogues are everywhere, these Jews who are not true Jews will attempt to come and persuade the believers that the law is still in effect and that you need to be circumcised to be saved. So this is possibly the first epistle, and they send it, again, contrasting with these unidentified men who don't have any relationship to Christ. They're sending, the apostles are sending Judas, uh, Barsabbas, and Silas, along with Paul and Barnabas, back to Antioch. Now, the reason they send Judas, uh, Barsabbas, and Silas is that Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas. And if Paul and Barnabas had somehow uh, decided that they didn't like the, favor, the, the outcome of the Jerusalem council, they could have just returned to Antioch and said all is well. And so the apostles think, well, we're going to send some other guys to make it extremely clear to Antioch that uh, the gospel is the means by which salvation is communicated both to the Jew and to the Gentile, not the law. And so um, they write this letter and... Uh, verse 24 is really the, the identifying, it, it is the condemnation of this Pharisaic uh, philosophy, this, this heresy, that uh, verse 24, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words. Again, there's that troubled and unsettling. Uh, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In opposition against these nameless, faceless men who didn't have any identification with the church, the apostles in Jerusalem say, we decided to sell, send you Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas Barsabbas to confirm doubly that the gospel is the means by which we are saved, not religious laws. 
So they were neither given instructions nor were they even sent out, and this gospel is not a gospel at all, but it's rather troubling and an unsettling lie. And here the book of Acts reads almost like the book of Numbers. You've got all these different players. And, and the reason I say that is, is that this, this time in the book of Acts is, is identifying those who are a part of this new movement. There's, there's apostolic relationship here that's being shared. These cities, these pillars of the faith, Antioch and Jerusalem, are coming to a mutual agreement and are sharing uh, a, a charity and love that is, is not just some uh, mere opinion, but rather is the counsel of God. And um, so they commend them, Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas, and uh, look at what takes place when this letter arrives. It says, so they were sent off, they went to Antioch, verse 31, and when they had read it, that is all the people who were gathered at church that day, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Well, why was it encouraging? Because everyone knew we cannot complete the law on our own. We need someone to complete the law for us. And that was proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas to be Jesus, that someone who completed the law. And so Judas and Silas, who were prophets, they encourage, they strengthen, and the church is built up in the city of Antioch. They absolutely rejoice because they were free. So with all of this narrative that God has so richly demonstrated the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, that is, the effectiveness of Jesus's sacrifice in procuring for you and for me salvation, which we could not accomplish on our own. In light of this overly clear uh, story from the book of Acts, here's some takeaways that I think uh, we should apply. We should be aware of the circumcision party, but I do not mean that in the literal sense. It's not just circumcision that we should be aware of. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, as I've been referring to, the, the beginning, middle, and end of the book, Galatians 5, 1, 13, 25, for for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, um, those of you who uh, have read the book of Galatians, Paul is arguing against uh, those who maintain that circumcision is necessary for salvation. But I would say that it also applies to many other things. He says that they should not waver in their faith, and they should not be enslaved again, and they've been called to freedom but this freedom should not turn into a license to sin or a license to be lazy or a license to not give or a license to not sacrifice your life for the building up of the church. That is the building up of your brothers and your sisters in, in Christ. You, you shouldn't turn the freedom of God, that the freedom that Christ has procured for you with his death, with his blood, you shouldn't turn that into a license to be calloused towards the spiritual condition of your friends, and your family. You shouldn't turn it into a, a means by which you just serve your own career or your own life. The freedom that you've been given by Christ is to be used in the way that Christ uh, demonstrated that he was the servant of all. And in fact, he taught that in the kingdom, the greatest among you would be the servant of all. 
So this freedom that we have, we should use it for, for love and not for selfish gain. But not only can we, uh, if we fail to do that, not only do we fall into a yoke of slavery, but through our mutual influence of one another, we can put it on our brothers and sisters, unknowingly, unwillingly, but it still happens. It's a doctrine of demons, and it, it seeks to influence and infect other people. And so while we're even desiring to be in the pure freedom of the finished work of the cross, we should also examine if there are areas in our lives where we're influencing people in an undue way. Now, I'm not talking about biblical encouragement to seek the Lord. I'm talking about things that the Lord doesn't have any opinion about. Or at, at best, he just kind of leaves it up to personal choice, like, like you know, what flavor of ice cream you want or, or um, you know, what, what hobbies you have. There are, there are godly means of recreation that are, are worse and there are better, but, but he doesn't command us to go after one another and, and proselytize each other into the, uh, the hobby of computers or the, the hobby of baseball or the hobby of whatever. It, I'm not saying that we should uh, disdain encouragement and exhortation. I'm saying that when we fellowship with one another in the church, we should not place undue, unbiblical burdens on our brothers and sisters. And you can absolutely do this. It's not just about circumcision. You can do this with food, whether you think that you eat too little or too much or the wrong thing or the right thing. You can do this with clothing, especially in the church. It's easy to do this with clothing. Um, you can do this with your career, your, your position, where you live, how poor you are, how, how rich you are. You can do this with anything that is really in our lives. Hobbies, again, you know, it's, it's absolutely anything. And so not only can we uh, neglect God's law and substitute our own, that is not loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving the Lord before all other things, uh, we can also put this on our brothers and sisters. And so our vacation Bible school, again, application focus, our, our vacation Bible school this coming uh, month is called, it's titled Gotta Move, and then the subtitle is Keeping in Step with the Spirit. That is Galatians 5, 25. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, that's a mighty goal for a vacation Bible school. We're going to take people from this neighborhood who are young, young people who probably have heard about Jesus, but they maybe don't understand the, the goodness of God and the, the gospel and the mercy that God has for them, to take them all the way from possibly never hearing about Christ to a life that keeps in step with the Spirit, that is, maintains a freedom that was purchased by Christ and does not substitute that freedom for licentiousness or, or selfishness, that, that's a high and mighty goal. And so as we go through this time in the next few months, the next few weeks rather, we should be praying all the more that God would demonstrate his grace in a magnificent and strong way. And so if we are to do well, it's important that when these children are in our midst, we don't put in front of them anything other than Christ crucified. It, it is not about the, the way they speak and the, the, the culture that they have now. Because I assure you, if, there are those, if kids from this neighborhood come into uh, our church and, and we, we minister to them and we try to serve them, I guarantee you, you will identify in your own heart in, in certain moments, should the Holy Spirit give you the grace in that moment, you will see your Pharisaic 
religious rules pop up like what I mean weeds in a in a field of grass I mean it will be intense and they will be poignant and they'll be clear and in those moments you you need to ask God for grace you need to check your heart and and say you know it's okay that they used a swear word I'm not going to fly off the handle and tell them they can't come to church any longer because they don't know any better they're they're in a different culture they they don't have the ability to even understand what your uh, possibly unbiblical, real, unrealistic expectations might be. Now, I don't think they should go around swearing, but I, just to be clear, it, they're not going to fit your mold. And therefore, uh, not only should your witness to them be consistent, it will be inconsistent unless this is the reality in your heart. That is, if if you are just trying to put on a show or, or trying to keep your Pharisaic tendencies at bay during the evangelism time, they'll see through it eventually. It, uh, that's one of the beauties of this church is we, you know, we, we live together and we have fellowship with one another and we can call BS when it exists. Um, and and the, the fact of the matter is, if you are nice to these kids only, on the exterior, but you don't have true grace in the heart to, to reach them, they'll see it and, and they won't see Christ. And so we should pray. We all need help from the Lord to do this. Uh, we're, we're, we're wanting to do this work at, in the neighborhood. We're wanting to do this work in, at, at Wright State, but really we need a, a deeper heart change. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the liberating freedom that Christ accomplished on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not consider the shame and the pain of the cross as something to be um, exalted, but rather you despised the shame, setting before yourself the joy that would come from sons and daughters returning to the Father. Lord, we ask that you would give to us a specific grace to take down our our walls of religion, our walls of Pharisaic laws that are not your law. Lord, we ask that you would give us a a mighty understanding of graciousness and how we are to both speak and how we are to treat and to serve these children in the next few weeks. We ask specifically that your hand would be mightily upon the the grays as they uh, bear the, the brunt of this effort and all the other leaders in the church and all the other people in the church, that you would cause us to have mercy in our heart, that we would be like Christ, move with compassion upon seeing multitudes without shepherds. God, we ask you that you would convert and, and, and change and, and heal and help these children who, without knowing you, have no possibility of, of a good life in this life or, or eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would give us tenderness and mercy, that we would not exalt the law, but rather that we would consider the weightier provisions of the law, like mercy and sacrifice and justice. And Lord, we ask that you would take from us every speck that still remains in our eyes, that we would be ready and able to help those, um, those who need it, Lord. God, I ask that you would even in myself, that you would cleanse me from unrealistic expectations and burdens that are not the burden of the Lord. 
But Lord, even though we turn away all other burdens, we ask that we would embrace the burden that you have for us, the burden that you've revealed in many ways through your word, through our friends, through our families, the burdens that you have for us, that we would embrace them because you said yourself that your yoke is light. Lord, we ask that we would place on these children nothing other than the yoke of Christ, that is Christ crucified and risen and ascended. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in these next few weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.